When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, everyone. Today's guest is the amazing Kevin Bacon, who you know from Footloose, JFK, Mystic River, and literally a hundred other things. Kevin tells us about getting cast in his first movie, the 1978 classic Animal House, which he expected to change his life, his failed attempt as a waiter, and the terrifying boss who remembered him years later, the advice Kevin would give his younger self, his favorite death scene, his new movie, They Slash Them, and much more. You also get to hear Kevin describe meeting his wife, Kira Sedgwick. Kira was on the show last year, and it's fun to compare how each describes their love story. After talking with Kevin, I get a call from Annie, whose boyfriend's mother doesn't think Annie is good enough for her son. Then we check in with two past callers and find out what's happened since we talked. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, we would love to hear from you. You'll find a link in our show notes. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. Kevin, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I'm looking forward to it. Good. I just could not love you more. <laughs> and your wife. She came on the podcast a few months ago. Yeah, she told me. Yeah, she had a great time. She is just so lovely. She gave us a version of how you met. Will you give us your version of that love story? Well, let's see. I was doing a play downtown when I first moved to New York from Philadelphia, I was really doing a lot of theater, a lot of off-Broadway, a lot of off-off-Broadway. Sometimes there were three offs involved. And Kira grew up in New York and her mom was a big theater goer. And Kira had started to show some interest in becoming an actress herself. She was doing, you know, school plays and stuff like that. And amazingly, her mother had sort of like clocked this young actor, me, and seen a couple of things that I'd been in. And for, I think it was her birthday, this is my memory. She got her tickets to this play that I was in downtown at the Cherry Lane Theater in the village called Album. So she came to the show. She came to a matinee. We had two shows that day. It was probably a Saturday or Sunday. And in between the shows, I was in the deli buying a sandwich and her and her brother were there. And she said, wow, that's that guy from the play. And her brother said, oh, go up to him and talk to him. And she did. And she said, hi, I liked you in the play. She was 12. <laughs> I was probably 19, I guess. And that's how we first met. Now, I have no memory of it, but she apparently does. That's amazing. And then you fell in love on a film set. We did, yeah. Many years later, there was a great playwright named Lanford Wilson. And Lanford had a play running at the Second Stage Theater that had Jeff Daniels and Cynthia Nixon were both in it. Jeff doing the lead part and Cynthia a smaller supporting thing. And the director from Boston, whose name was Jane Eagleson, came to the play and decided that he wanted to film it. He wanted to do a filmed television presentation for American Playhouse, which was a PBS show back in the day. 
Jeff and Cynthia both turned it down, basically. So really have them to thank for uh, the two of us getting together because neither one of them wanted to go to Boston and do this thing. And so, yeah, we ended up acting together and it was February and we met. I fell in love with her pretty much immediately. What was it, do you think? Well, I don't know. I mean, she just had this amazing energy. She does. Yeah, she's got a light, yeah. inviting warmth. Yeah, she definitely did. And she was a knockout and she was very serious about her work. We have a word which is actressy or actory. Sure. I love it. <laughs> Applicable in a lot of situations. <laughs> yeah. She didn't have that. You know, she didn't have that. She was, I don't know, you know, I can't really put my finger on what that difference is, but I could already see that at that young age, I mean, she was probably, what, 21. I could see that she was looking beyond herself to the rest of the world and had a real love both of humanity, but also of theater and arts and trying to be as good and do as good a job as possible and was more focused on that than she was on, I don't know, glamour. That is really attractive. Yeah, it was very attractive to me. I mean, I don't know if it is to everybody, but to me it was very, very attractive. And, you know, she wasn't really into it at first. <laughs> I had to chip away at her. <laughs> really? She oh, yeah. kind of presented herself as the, well, I think it was more that she hid her feelings very well for you. Yeah, but at first, and I don't know if she told you this, but this is definitely the truth. At first, she was put off by me because I think that I was not that. <laughs> at that age, the way that I presented initially was not, I would say, a down-to-earth kind of regular dude. You know, I was cocky and I was extremely at least on the exterior. The exterior was very, very confident. And, you know, I had a kind of what she considered to be a very, very well-defined self-image. You know, I had a dog with me. It's funny because she's such a dog lover and I'm a dog lover and I was always traveling with my dog, but there was something about me showing up with my dog. And she was like, oh God, he's got a dog. It was almost as though she thought I was using it as a prop. <laughs> <laughs> And that I was trying to pull something off, you know, become more, I don't know, appealing. And the other thing was I'd been in a relationship for quite a few years right before that. I'd been in a lot of relationships before that one, but then I hadn't been in any relationships in a long time. So I didn't really know how to approach it. I was sort of terrified and bumbling. She didn't even really get that I was interested in her. Well, I'm really happy it all worked out. <laughs> You described attending the Animal House premiere as a humbling experience. Will you tell us a little bit more about that? Oh, yeah. It was the most humbling experience. I mean, you know, Animal House was my first movie. I had moved to New York maybe a year or two before. I'd been working as a busboy and a waiter and living in a roach-infested apartment with a roommate on the Upper West Side and, you know, trying to get a gig and figure out what it was going to be like to be an actor. I was only a couple of years out of high school. And they came to the acting school that I was at, Circle in the Square on 50th and Broadway. And a casting director decided for some of these peripheral parts, kind of like a talent search of unknown people. So without an agent, I went in and met with John Landis. It was a very, very small part. And basically he cast me because I could make a face that he liked, you know? And so I made this face for him. And then all of a sudden out of the blue, I got this part. And I got flown out to the University of Oregon where we shot Animal House. And I stepped into this wonderful, incredible, magical world that I've lived the rest of my life in. That was my first exposure to it. 
So when I got back to New York, I had this idea in my head that my life had changed in a way. Again, you know, there was that sort of hubris that I was living with. And that when this movie came out, because I was in it, I was basically going to not be able to walk down the street anymore. You know, I mean, I heard a story about James Burroughs, you know, great television director, taking the cast of Friends right when they were about to shoot the pilot. They took them to Vegas and he sat them down and he said, you know, go enjoy the casino because you're never going to be able to do that again in your life. You're never going to be able to walk through this casino without getting mobbed. Your life is about to change. That's a big promise to make. I mean, (laughs) it is. It is. But he was very confident that that was going to happen. And he was right. Now, in my case, I had sort of convinced myself that that was about to happen to me. Then that must have been a weirdly lonely time. If you're still working as a waiter, Mm -hmm. you are anticipating the movie coming out. Uh You've lived that experience. What was that time frame like? Were you able to be like, dude, I'm in this movie? Yeah, I was. And listen, the place where I was working as a waiter, there's this fantastic show, The Bear, on now. And it was a similar kind of place, not quite a sandwich shop, but it did have a bar. But it was very much a family. I mean, that was my family at the time. Oh, that's nice. Those are my friends. They were from all different walks of life. I was by far the youngest one, but I had very good friends and lovers. And I was completely enmeshed in this world. And in that world, those people were nothing but supportive that maybe somebody in this family could bust out and make it. Oh, incredible. So when the movie came, (laughs) when it came to town, pretty much all of the cast and directors and crew and producers, everybody were LA based, but they came to New York for this New York premiere and it was going to be down on Broadway, like in Midtown. And I got really excited about it. I had to ask for the night off from work. And, you know, my boss said, yeah, go, you know, you're going to kill it. And I showed up at the premiere. Are you in like your nicest suit? (laughs) I was in whatever I thought would be attractive Uh to make a night of it. I don't know if I wore suits. I don't know what I would have worn. Honestly, I'm not sure. But it was probably like a members only jacket or something like that, you know. But, you know, I showed up at the premiere and here come all these big limousines. And the cast is all piling out of these limousines. And I'm on the other side of the red rope, you know, I'm out there with the crowd holding just like a regular ticket and everybody else is walking this red carpet. And I had not been included in any kind of way in that. So I was like, oh, wow, there's a real hierarchy here. These are the stars of the movie. I'm not the star of the fucking movie. I have this tiny little part. And I went into the theater and I wasn't allowed to go past one section where the seats were kind of sectioned for members of the cast and the filmmakers and stuff. But somebody saw me from, I guess, one of the other actors and took pity on me, dragged me into that section. I went down to a party that was at the village gate and I realized that nobody recognized me. You know, I didn't have the short hair anymore. And it was a great movie to have been in just in terms of like such an iconic film. And I'm so happy to have been in it. But it did not do anything for either my career or changing my life. And I ended up that night going back to the bar. And leaving this, you know, what I assumed was going to be a glamorous party where I was going to have women hanging all over me and, you know, photographers wanting my picture and all, it was a bust, you know. And so I went back to the bar and hung out with my friends. <laughs> I went and I was like, shit, are they still open? You know, it's like one o'clock in the morning. And, you know, we just hung out. And that was a great sort of realization that, you know, you're not always as cool as you think. 
And there really isn't like a finish line. Right. There's just no guarantee around here. Right, right. (laughs) Okay, you get to pick either your worst job or your worst boss. Let's see. I had a boss, I'll flip the story on its head because when I got this job, it was the first job I got in New York as a busboy at Fiorello's Roman Cafe. The manager of the bar restaurant was a guy named Phil, and he was terrifying. There were two managers. It was like good cop, bad cop. And you'd hope that this other guy would be on because he would be a little bit less terrifying. But Phil was very, very scary. It's like a New York, kind of a rough and tumble guy. And I was out there trying to do my thing. And the hope was that you could get bumped up to become a waiter. That was my big goal. Because if I could get moved out of being a busboy into a waiter, then the tips would be better. You get a little bit more hierarchy. You know, you're actually dealing with people as opposed to start dealing with dirty dishes. And so he gave me a shift as a waiter. And I was really, really nervous about it. And I was walking down. They had the terracotta tiles. And we had this thing in the restaurant where you had to use a tray service. That was the only way you were allowed to serve was on a tray. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, God. So I'll never forget, I had two hamburgers. <laughs> oh, no. And a bottle of ketchup right in the middle. And I'm walking with this thing. And I start to see the ketchup start to go like this. So I'm like, well, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And the ketchup falls off and it hits the terracotta. And it explodes all over <sighs> this guy with a white suit on. He's literally wearing a white suit. Now, this is around the time of Saturday Night Fever, so it would make sense that some people would have a white suit on. (laughs) So in my mind, I can't deal with this right now because I've got these two hamburgers that I have to put down. So I basically just looked down and kept going. So the guy just, his fucking head just explodes because I basically walked past him. It was was obviously not the thing to do. So he flips out and Phil comes over. And the most terrifying thing of all was that he didn't yell at me. He just sort of dealt with the guy and the guy was screaming that he was going to travel. He was about to get on a plane and he was like, we're going to get your suit clean, your meals comp, you know, the whole thing. And he basically looks at me and says, get back to work, you know? So after the shift is over, I'm sitting there going, I'm fired. That's it. I know I'm out of here. Calls me down. There's this little office down in the uh, basement. Oh, God. Terrifying. Yeah, it was terrifying. No escape. No escape, exactly. You know, he could have hit me in the head with a phone book. And he says, you know, you're not ready to be a waiter, right? And I went, oh, yeah, I know. Uh, boy, do I know. <laughs> so he kind of put me back to being a busboy. And then eventually eased me kind of back into a couple of lighter shifts. And eventually when I left that place, I actually was working as a waiter. I did have a few shifts and I've actually since seen Phil like around the neighborhood or, you know, he went on to manage some other restaurants and sometimes I go and he always would come up and say, I'm so proud of, you know, what you did. And that's why I'm saying the story got flipped on its ear because ultimately he was a benevolent ruler. I think that's wonderful. Good for Phil. Phil Scott. (laughs) Got it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Kevin, tell us about high school. How do you think your classmates would have described you? Hmm. I mean, people liked me in high school. I was definitely popular. I think I'm one of those people, which is a lot of what being an actor is that could really hang like with pretty much everybody. You know, I wasn't a great student. Well, you didn't need to be. Yeah, I didn't need to be. <laughs> I, I didn't. Honestly, it's a terrible thing to say, but I didn't need or really want any kind of education. The education that I wanted was the education of an actor, of learning how to do what it was that I had already decided that I wanted to do, you know. So high school was a place that I was trying to get out of, you know, get away from. Mm -hmm. I wanted to move past it. I had good friends and I had great teachers. I was in the Philadelphia public school system. And I think that teachers, it's one of the most heroic jobs there is. Agreed. To, you know, go in there every day with very little acknowledgement and very little money and, you know, deal with people who are at such a volatile age and to try to break through and teach something important to uh, young minds. I mean, it's just, it's heroic. How old were you when you first felt like you were in love? Oh, three. I was the same way. I mean, I had love fantasies about people from a very, very, very young age. Maybe not three. I'm not sure I can remember three. But it's hard for me to remember a time when I wasn't feeling some kind of love. How old were you when you had your first serious relationship? Hmm. That's, <laughs> how do you define that? Serious relationship? Well, maybe like a year. Yeah, okay. For that, I would say probably about. 18, maybe. Yeah. With a much older woman. Oh, interesting. Yeah. When I was a teenager, I dated much older women most of the time. What was the draw? Uh, what wasn't the draw? <laughs> right. I mean, I'm with you. I think you were wise beyond your years. <laughs> I don't know that it was necessarily a draw as it was just that's who I was around. You're right. Because I wasn't in college, right? So I was working in restaurants and bars. Even at Circle and Square, where I went for the first two years of the theater school, I was by far the youngest student there. I was 18, and everybody there was usually college graduates. It was more of like a conservatory-type school. So I don't know. It wasn't so much that I was like, oh, I, I like, you know, that's who I was around. And I didn't really ever think about it as anything other than they were just women that I liked. During that time in your life, did they usually break up with you, or did you break up with them? How would you rate yourself as a boyfriend? I'm sure I've made mistakes. Who broke up with who? I think there were a lot of times when it just kind of... Just fizzled. Yeah, just kind of fizzled. I think that when I was in a relationship with someone, I think I was usually committed to them. And it's not like I was sort of a philandering Lothario, but I did have a lot of relationships. I think that there's a correlation between those early sort of crushes and being a good boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I am curious about the actor-actressy idea. Right. 
To me, I would describe someone as actor or actressy if it seems like they don't really enjoy acting, if they're a little wrapped up in the other shit. There you go. Yeah, I think that's a good description. Where the other stuff is more important. Right. Listen, I love actors. I have a very, very soft spot in my heart for us and for what we do. And it's hard and it's vulnerable. And there's a lot of bullshit that you have to put up with and go through in order to get it done. So even if somebody is actory or actressy, I don't begrudge them to a certain extent because it's a vulnerable place to be. And, you know, if you tend to make a little bit more drama out of things in your life, that's what you do for a living. You know, you're a (laughs) dramatic person. I think that's generous of you. I definitely went through a decade of like resentment mm-hmm. because I was such a theater kid. Mm-hmm. You know, early 2000s, there were like a ton of teen movies. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of astounded that so many people did not seem to concern themselves with the performance. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <gasps> Kevin, if you could give your younger self any advice, what would it be? When I was younger, for many, many years, What I didn't want was advice. What I didn't want was help. What I didn't want was a mentor. I was even resistant to teachers. I took acting classes. I had an agent, but I really felt that ultimately I knew everything there was to know about the industry, about acting. I wish if I could look back and change anything that I would have embraced a mentor. I would have really listened when somebody was giving me career advice. I don't remember ever being a child in a weird way. You know, I always felt like I got this from a very, very young age. And I don't know if that's nature or nurture or some kind of a combination of the two things. Now in my life, I stop and listen more. I look and listen people and hear what it is that they have to say. And they don't have to be you know, older people. They can be younger people. They can be people that have a different kind of life experience than me. You know, Someone who comes from a completely other world that I don't think I can understand. So if anything, I would say, look for some advice. People ask me a lot because Kira and I've been married for so long. They ask me a lot of relationship advice. And you know, I just can't say that I have it. Truth is, is that marriages mostly don't work. Relationships mostly end in divorce or separation. Nobody has proved to me that it's any worse in our industry than it is anywhere else. You know, I don't know that it's any worse in our industry. The only thing about it is that sometimes we have to pretend to be in love with somebody else or pretend to have sex with someone else. And to me, that's almost like a small hurdle. We all have to pretend to kill people and pretend to die and pretend to get cancer and, you know, do all these other things that we have to pretend to do. But I think that the two of us just kind of found someone that we were meant to be with. So I think sometimes people put too much pressure on themselves if a relationship doesn't work out that they've completely fucked up in some kind of way. It's hard, man. Not everybody is meant to stay together. And in terms of acting and career, what I tell young people is do something else. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Someone, you know, in high school said that you were handsome and pretty and your voice was nice and you should be an actor because you were good in the school play. Here's my advice. Do something else. But if you're the person that says Kevin Bacon told me to do something else and I told Kevin Bacon to go to hell, then you're the person that should become an actor because (laughs) you have to have that drive. You know, you got to have that hunger in your belly. You got to have that desire to try to find something that is unique about yourself. And 
you know, you obviously, besides just being good at it, you found something that was working for you that makes you go, wait a second, I got something that somebody else doesn't have. There's a million people in this room who are going to try to get this part. And once you get that part, there's a million things that are going to come out that weekend or a million TV shows on the air or whatever it is. And there's so many chances for so many things to go wrong. And you just have to keep telling yourself, yeah, but I got something that nobody else has. You're right. Kevin, I was an odd, solitary child. And I watched Whitewater Summer (laughs) over and over and over again. I really loved that movie. I don't hear about that one very much. (laughs) I loved it. It spoke to me in a way that maybe Footloose didn't or I don't know. So the preamble is this. You're a wonderful villain. And will you tell us about They Slash Them, your new movie? And hopefully I didn't just give anything away. No, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, you know right away that I'm a guy that runs a gay conversion camp. So you're some kind of villain. (laughs) I mean, whether or not you're a killer is one thing. But right out of the box, he's obviously not a good dude. It is a movie that is set in a gay conversion camp. And it has a template that is a lot based on the kind of camp slasher movies of the 70s, of which I was in one of the most famous ones, Friday the 13th, which ended up spawning not only so many movies in that genre, but also about, I don't know, 17 (laughs) sequels or something (laughs) like that. I don't know. And John Logan, who wrote and directed the film, who I've known for many years, he's a brilliant screenwriter and playwright with an incredible list of credits. Yes. Yeah, I mean, amazing. Like Gladiator? Yeah, Skyfall. Yeah, yeah. On and on and on and on. He came to me with this thing, and he was so horrified by the idea that this could even exist in this day and age. But rather than make a movie that would be a dark little indie sort of exposing this, you know, there is a version of this movie that probably less people would want to see. He decided to take a genre that has the possibility of reaching a larger audience. And so he structured it as a straight up slasher movie. But the horror in the movie, yes, there's a killer. Yes, I have to figure out who it is. But it's also a very empowering movie for LGBTQ youth. There's all kinds of young people in the movie who I think are all in their performances, extremely authentic. And my character, what we tried to lean into was to move away from what would be a typical kind of idea about the type of man who would run this place with a crew cut and, you know, sort of a right wing, heavily religious sort of figure and make him a little bit softer and a little more reasonable, at least initially, and a little bit more of a hippie. Yeah. You're inviting. Inviting. Yeah. Yeah. And what John and I talked about a lot was that we wanted these scenes to almost feel as though somebody could be sitting out there going, yeah. I hear what he's saying. He's making a lot of sense, even though what he's saying is absolutely terrible and to me is completely objectionable. And then, of course, the actions that follow are incredible and severe and scary. And then there's some incredibly fun moments. And you're right. The young actors just do a beautiful job. They do. Yeah, they really do. And they were great to work with. And I think they all had a really great time. You know, John created a very great, fun set to the extent that it could be fun given what we were doing. He made it a really pleasant place to work. And that's on Peacock, August 5th. Um, Kevin, before you go, will you tell me what your favorite death scene has been? I think it would be 
probably River Wild. I die at the end of that, and Meryl shoots me. So you could do worse than having Meryl Streep shoot you. So was no. that your first time with a squib? No, my God, no. Oh, I don't remember the first time with a squib. I've had multiple squibs. I think the most I ever had was seven. I've been gutted. Mm-hmm. My throat was slit once. Yeah, it happens. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> the River Wild. I read somewhere that you guys were falling out of the boats. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. We all came out of the boat. It was definitely a dangerous movie to make. And one that I just read two days ago, they're remaking, I think, as we speak. And I hope it's good. <laughs> and I mean, you get old enough, you start remaking your movies. Kevin, thank you again. Please you. give my love to your wife. I will. Bye-bye. Bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. <laughs> I'm here by myself today. Um, will you tell our listeners what's going on? Yes. So I have been with my boyfriend, Jack, for about eight years now. And he's always been really close with his mom. I'm really close with my family too. But recently, I have been having some issues with her. So essentially, we've always had a good relationship the whole time we've been together. His grandma got sick earlier in the year in January And like everybody went to go basically say goodbye to her. There was a big fight and his mom had been drinking, ended up kind of blowing up on everybody. He stood up to her and it did not go well. She said some terrible things to him the next day, kind of like doubled down on that and blocked him. And then he was trying to repair it. It again, wasn't going well, kind of kept getting worse and ended up that... She revealed to me that he had kissed another girl like five years ago, right before we had taken a break, which was like a good time for us to take a break. Like it made sense. I didn't know about that part of it. So that was really hard for me to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So we were already dealing with that. And then his mom, like I was like, you know what? I think I'm going to be done. My parents are like, we're very Southern. It's very like, always tell the truth. So for me, that was a big deal. And I had contacted her to be like, you know, you guys really need to fix this. What you said to him was wrong. He loves you so much. I don't know if I can stay. And she 
seemed to be really nice to me then, but then later that night sent me honestly one of the meanest text messages I've ever read, which culminated to the worst part being that he deserved to be with somebody who could give him children, which I lost my fertility to breast cancer when I was like 26. And we were together during that time. So like she knew me during that time. And she's again, like kind of doubled down on that afterwards, but with trying to then repair her relationship with him. So it went from he's the enemy to I'm the enemy. And it was like, oh, is she controlling you? Like, is she not letting you talk to us? Is this all her doing it? And I didn't say anything to her. And so now it's been months and she's written me a letter and said she feels horrible, like wants to be forgiven. And him and I have been working a lot on our relationship and like it's going very well. So I don't want to like have a complicated relationship with her forever. And like, it's obviously very difficult for him, this situation too. And I have worked a lot on like being a people pleaser because I've done that my whole life. And I've worked a lot on not doing that in the past few years of my life. And so I'm having this like moral conflict of like, there's a part of me that of course wants to forgive people. But there's also this part of me that even when I was reading her letter, that was just like, okay, whatever. I don't even want to hear this. So I'm just wondering like, how do I forgive her? And should I... You know, before we kind of get into this, just to put things into perspective a little bit, Annie, and hopefully maybe this is good food for thought, is that because her actions are illogical and cruel, it's not personal, even though she knows how personal her digs are. She's like spewing it out. And so I don't know what is driving her unhappiness, what kind of bitterness in her life that she is swimming in right now. Yeah. But I'm really sorry. But do know that if it weren't you guys, it would be somebody else. And it probably is. She's in a dark, bitter place. Yeah. How generous do you want to be? That's a good question. And I think that that's something like my mom and I are super close and she's the kind of person who like if somebody needed her to like literally chop off her arm for them or something, she would do it without hesitation. And I think I've wanted to always be so much like her because I admire that about her. But then I also want to show her she can care for herself in the same way. And I think in this situation, like that's really where I'm conflicted because a part of me wants to just be like, okay, be the bigger person and just forgive. But then there's also a part of me that feels like that's accepting that treatment or like setting something up. Yeah, without boundaries. This is like when you have to change your mentality to you're in like the customer service industry. Yeah. She's at a place where you can't get revenge right now. You can't get satisfaction. Yeah, it's difficult too because like our whole relationship, I feel like I've always had a really good relationship with her and like a pretty close relationship with her. So to hear that like flip. Totally. This is crazy. Oh, yeah. I can only imagine how shocking it must have been. Annie, I really admire how considerate you're being toward her. My instinct my whole life has always been to just be kind to people, you know, know that there's always more going on than just what's on the surface. But it has led me to be like taken advantage of in my life for sure. Right. And because you are an open, sensitive person, this stings even harder. Yeah. And it's stupid. Like she totally showed her hand with the family thing. Like, come on, this is nonsense. And I hope that this is of comfort to you because when people act, illogically. It's good to recognize it and it's good to understand 
that while it is personal, like she is convinced that she is mad at you both. Yeah. I don't know why she's making this choice, but she is. Yeah. But I think that to protect the relationship with your boyfriend, you will need to be incredibly generous with his mother because at some point he will forgive her and she will be back in your life. Yeah, I think that, you know, for him, this is all pretty new too because she was a single mom when she yeah. raised him and all of that. So it's also very new for him and he's kind of trying to navigate that the best he can also. And we know that like there's going to be obviously time soon where we will probably see her. And I think it is just like how to approach that and how to protect ourselves. Yes. Because obviously it's easy when you're like across the country and, you know, you can avoid a phone call. Yeah. I think you might have to be really generous with him too. So he won't have to choose you over her. Otherwise there might be some resentment later. Yeah. And I think you are the only one who can really offer the olive branch. Yeah. I wouldn't usually advocate taking shit from anyone, but I think you kind of have to play the long game here. You'll probably never be as close to her as you were or look at her the same way again, but you'll have to fake it. Yeah. At the same time, I don't want you to tell her that she hurt you. She won't give you what you want, you know, and I don't want you to be vulnerable, at least for now. Yeah. But if you can find a way to let go of it and convince her that you have, then everyone benefits in some way. And your boyfriend will appreciate you making that effort for him. I do want you to set some boundaries, though. And if she says or does something like this again, you know, I want you to stand up for yourself. And I think after seeing how you handled everything this time, your boyfriend will or should stand up for you. It will be an easier choice. That's a good idea. If he doesn't protect you, then then that's another conversation. <laughs> you know, this might even be an opportunity for you and your boyfriend to get closer you can scheme together, you know, on how to win her back, but it's going to take a lot of patience for sure. I think it's tough because I've never been in to that situation where, you know, I've had other long-term relationships, definitely not as long as this one, but it's usually the situation where the mom likes me so much that then the boy likes me. <laughs> well, I'm really happy for you. And I think that there's a lot of wonderful potential. I love it that you're in a great relationship. Yeah. I'm really sorry that you are in a position where you have to be this generous. It sucks, but it'll pay off in the long run. Yeah, I think it's helpful too to just have like an outside uninvested opinion that also isn't my therapist who's obviously also invested in me. Yeah. I did want to say though, Anna, I did wait on you one time and you were the kindest celebrity oh I've ever God. waited on. Very close tie with Drew Barrymore. Oh, Annie, that totally warms my heart. Thank I'm you. I'm a fan of both of yours, but I just remember that day being like, she is just 40 million times more wonderful than I could have ever imagined. Oh, Annie, thank you so much. And thank you for calling in today. Every so often, we hear back from our callers letting us know how things turned out. So today, we're going to share excerpts from two episodes followed by recent updates. This is Carmela talking with me and my co-host, Sophia Bush. I'm going to preface this kind of content for the whole story is he's 12 years older than me. So right now I'm 30. He's 42. This situation happened where his family basically sold their home that they were all living in 
before their new home was ready. So they were all essentially displaced. And I had to like do a big ask and uh, work things out with my folks and see if, hey, could he like live with us for a little while? Long story short, the pandemic hits. So a few weeks turns into nine months of him living basically with me and my brother and my mother in this house. I mean, I have a pretty good setup here, but um, just adding in an extra body, it's It's a big deal. That's diving into the deep end. Yeah, and we were good those nine months. And I mean, he never really had to worry about anything, to put it plainly, like everything was pretty much taken care of for him. And then um, I wasn't part of the original plans to move into this big house that him and the rest of his family were moving into. But after him and I living together for nine months, it seemed to be like a good idea. But once I moved into that home, things completely changed. And because of the pandemic, he wasn't working as much. So I was like financially supporting him. And these people wanted me to financially support them too, to top it all off. Meaning they wanted you to pay rent? Yes. They were more than aware that their son couldn't foot the bills, but they had no problem taking money out of my hands. And they they had no problem. Like I can never do enough for these people, I realized, because I was constantly running errands for them. Like I'd be in the middle of working and all of a sudden they would ask me to go to the store for them and make a copy of this, like send the mail out, things of that nature. And they even asked me to shovel the snow And that's where I drew a line. I was like, my big thing was, yo, you're the man, you shovel the snow. I'm not dealing with this. And like, the thing is, like I said, he was all comfortable at my place and my parents treated him like he was their own. They didn't ask him for anything. Meanwhile, in our apartment, we didn't have a washer and dryer there. If I were to ask his mother, hey, can I please use your washer and dryer? She would look at me like I asked her for a kidney. And whenever they did manage to help me with anything, they would end up like throwing it in my face and things kind of just kept going downhill from there. Like, I I kid you not, there was this one day where things really took a turn for the worse. And I was like, I got to get out of here. There's this one Sunday where I think it was his mother texted him and said, oh, come up for family dinner at like 3 p.m. He didn't want to go. He didn't even bother mentioning it to me. Tell me how these people turned it into. She's trying to tear this family apart. She's jealous of your sister-in-law. You were getting like the blame. Yes. This is crazy. Here's the thing. If he wants a future with you, he has to do the work of setting boundaries with his family. Right. And one of the best ways to do that is math because math is unemotional. (laughs) And to look at the nine months of not an ounce of a financial contribution in your home, what would the rent have been for half of the basement apartment in your parents' house? Oh, about a grand. Great. So we're starting with $9,000. What does it cost monthly to send your laundry out to a service? Because that's what you had to do at his house, but they wouldn't let you use the washer. Mm -hmm. Your mother did this man's laundry. He's 42 years old. You are employed. How much money are you making? He's not making any money. What are the utilities he's not contributing to? What, like, this is absurd. The fact that his family had the nerve to ask you for rent money after your family let him live rent-free for nine months, Uh I'm insulted. Oh, man. First, Carmela, I was like, we can do this. We can solve this. (laughs) Because I was like, you know what? She's really into this guy He makes her feel safe, and they connect, and he's into her. They can overcome some things. But 
it is in these particular circumstances, until he has enough financial resource to extract himself from that living scenario, that is a big hurdle. And I don't know if you're going to get anywhere by telling him, you let me down in this way. And I love you and I want things to work out, but here are the things that need to change because I don't know if he's ready for it yet. Now we are going to hear what Carmela decided to do and what happened since we spoke. So after the call, I generally just really began phasing out Clodro. As simple as it sounds, I just stopped speaking to him. And as time went on, I figured he got the hint and I hate to be like someone to to block, but eventually I realized I had to like just block this person. And I've just been trying to focus on my myself, you know, get back to the gym and other things that make me happy on top of being the workaholic that I am. I just can't thank them enough, really. I mean, I'm just such a fan of both, but <laughs> I think just hearing their voices really cleared things up, really put things in gear for me because I feel like deep down, I subconsciously knew all of this, but I didn't want to own up to it. But hearing Anna and Sophia say things that I was thinking really solidified it for me. I just wanted to, you know, thank them. They really put it into perspective for me and just hearing their take on things helped out a lot. And uh, honestly, I feel a lot better mentally just putting it in the back of my head like, hey, this happened X amount of time ago. And there's bigger and better things out there for me. And she said to me, and Anna said this as well, that I deserve better. And that's the big thing here is realizing that I I do deserve better. And I think I internally knew that. And that's why I left and moved out at the time that I did. My co-hosts in this next clip were Cameron Diaz and Catherine Power. Here is a recap of our call with Gina. So I just recently got engaged. And one of the issues that's come up, but also been something that's been weighing on my mind for the last even year, is my dad's wife. She's an alcoholic. I don't think she would admit that, but we all know she's an alcoholic. And both of my older brothers are married, and she caused a scene at One of the weddings being there and then not even being there, she still managed to cause issues. She was the reason my dad left my mom. So obviously that causes some major issues just with that factor. So my first brother got married like 10 years ago and she was not invited to the wedding because the divorce had like just happened. And so when she wasn't there, my dad was obviously upset about that and got into a fight with my other brother about it. And then he refused to even come to the reception because she wasn't invited. So then last year, my other brother got married and she was drunk and lost her purse and proceeded to accuse my brother's brand new in-laws and like close friends and family of stealing her purse. I don't need to hear anything more, okay? So <laughs> this is like drama. Obviously, this person is has issues. And also your father obviously is an issue. Just have a conversation with your dad. Sit him down with him and say, hey, dad, look at what means so much to me as your daughter is to have you take me down the aisle. I want that. That is a gift I'm asking you to give me. But I'm also asking you to please leave her at home. Yeah. I'm asking you to not bring her because I need you to respect me, honor me, not make this about you, not make this about her, but please make it about me and don't punish me for it. That is not a healthy relationship to have with your daughter. 
I'm just going to say this. Your marriage is about you. Your wedding is about mm-hmm. you. It's not about your dad. It's not about his wife. And if your father cannot put you before himself or his wife to honor you on one of the most important days of your life, to come forward in a ceremony to join you and your husband, that's what it's about. It's about who you want to be present for that ceremony, to witness that. It's about your community who's going to help the two of you remember what you said to one another. Okay, there is another version of this where everyone gets drunk and just has a crazy time. (laughs) Here's Gina with an update. I just ultimately decided it's not in our best intentions to have her there when she could embarrass us and basically steal focus. And it's not about her, it's to be about us. So we haven't actually had the conversation with my dad. We're still, we're in the early planning stages when I talked with them. So my dad actually has stepped forward in a big way with financial help, which makes the conversation almost more awkward to have. We originally were not anticipating him to contribute in any way. So we are pretty pleasantly surprised. We still want to have the conversation, but we've also kind of decided to go about it a little bit differently, voicing our concerns first, as opposed to just kind of come out and be like, she can't come. Like we think if we kind of go through it with my dad, like more logically of this is what our concerns are then hopefully he'll come forward and be like, well, then maybe it's just best that she doesn't come because he's not not aware of the situation. He knows. So it's not like it's going to be a total surprise to him, but we just thought it kind of put it onto him a little bit before we just outwardly say she's not welcomed. I do feel like my dad has been really excited for us and like really wants to hear updates. So I think that that's been really good and very surprising for us. So again, that kind of makes it harder when he's being more supportive than I think we anticipated. She's also kind of been supportive and wants to hear stuff, which, you know, then again, makes it difficult. But again, we know what she's like when she's in person versus just us on the phone. I think one of the things that really stuck out to us, and this didn't just apply to them, but just to everybody that we're inviting was really focus on people that are there for us in the now and who we see in the future supporting us. I think that's kind of even guided our choices for our wedding party, um, like picking people that know us and not necessarily just people that know me from my past or him from his past and really just making it about us. And that's really driven our whole planning of our whole day is throwing out some traditions because we don't like them and we don't care that they're traditions. If it doesn't feel like us, then we're not doing it. I think just that overall message of it's our day, it's about you, who cares what anybody else thinks. And I think that's holding us through everything that we've decided. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It really helped me focus my views for my wedding and just really appreciate your help. Thank you so much to Carmela and Gina for being on the show and sharing their stories so openly with us. We are rooting for you and wish you nothing but the best. As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you have a question and would like to talk with us, we would love to hear from you. You'll find a link in our show notes. 